swimming under the full moon, the werewolf and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and as you might have noticed from the introductory music, we have a slightly different show for you today. See, we were scheduled to have Dr. Osvaldo Oyola join us today and talk about the conclusion of the Omega the Unknown storyline in Defenders number 77. Unfortunately, Dr. Osvaldo's ship was caught in a terrible storm. Now, he was rescued by a kindly old lighthouse keeper, but that lighthouse keeper noticed that Osvaldo had a strange birthmark that he recognized. One thing led to another, and wouldn't you know it, there was a prophecy, and Osvaldo is currently mired in a civil war in an undersea realm. It's a whole thing. Now that should be wrapped up by this weekend, so hopefully we will be able to bring you the Omega the Unknown coverage with Dr. Osvaldo next Wednesday. But in the meantime, I'm left with a bit of a conundrum. Or I was, until I saw my calendar, and realized it's the third Wednesday of June. It's Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. Hooray! Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. Bah, humfish. Bah, humfish? That's not a phrase. But also, I don't appreciate the message I think it's trying to convey. What's your problem with Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day, old Victorian-era industrialist who is in my comic book room for some reason? Aquatic teens should be seen and not heard. Well, comic books are a visual medium, so that's really not an issue. Stuff and nonsense. Besides, isn't Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day in March? Well, it was last year, but Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day is calculated by the Tiberian calendar, which added two extra Novembers so that the Emperor could have three birthdays. Which is why this year it's in June. Hooray! Well, I don't see why aquatic teens should be appreciated. I don't like what it could lead to. Children using their imaginations, a lack of interest in banking, a decline in the availability of cartoonish sleeping caps of the type I favor. Bah, humfish! Again, that's not really a phrase. But I can see that someone needs to teach you the true meaning of Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. Last year we celebrated by looking at the first appearances of Aqualad, Aquagirl, and Namorita. But I can see you need more convincing than that. So today you'll be visited by synopses of the first appearances of three more aquatic teenage heroes. And hopefully they'll be able to teach you the true spirit of Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. Do your worst, spirit. You'll never have me hanging a wreath of kelp on my door. Well, I'm I'm not a ghost, but, uh, well, okay. Previously in the first Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day special. We read the first appearances and oceanic origins of such sea-strengthened superheroes as Aquagirl, Namorita, and Aqualad. We were thrilled as Namorita engaged in crustacean-clobbering combat alongside her concussed cousin. We were chilled by Aquagirl's underwater go-go dancing and yacht-burgling antics as she was hypnotized by a two-headed eel. We were, um, killed? No, 
Oh, okay. Ah, we wish we were Guild, so that we could witness firsthand the fish-fearing formative years of Aqualad as he was therapeutically pranked by Aquaman and played with a hoop and stick. Gadzooks! Will this year's offering feature such A-list aquatic adolescence? Does anyone get hypnotized by sea life with a non-normal number of noggins? And will a hoop and stick play prominently into the plot of any of these stories? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Um... I guess technically all these characters are on a list that I made. So, in a sense, yes. No. But a one-eyed octopus gets hypnotized. And, sadly, no. Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 133. October, 1970. Jimmy Olsen Brings Back the Newsboy Legion Written by Jack Kirby Drotted by Jack Kirby Except for Superman's head, which was drotted by Al Plastino Inkted by Vince Coletta Lettered by John Costanza And edited by E. Nelson Bridwell and Murray Boltonoff Featuring the aquatic teen debut of The Flippa Dippa Hooray! Jimmy Olsen's new boss, Morgan Edge, has sent him on a dangerous mission into the heart of the wild area, a largely unexplored piece of land populated by futuristic hippie biker gangs. You know, the wild area. Jimmy's first stop is to procure transportation and an escort from the newly formed Newsboy Legion. The original Newsboy Legion was a group of newsboys from the streets of New York named Scrapper, Tommy, Big Words, and Gabby, who went on adventures and fought crime and Nazis during World War II. The new version of the Newsboy Legion is made up of the offspring of the originals who resemble their fathers in every way, including their names. I think at some point it's actually revealed that they are clones of their fathers, but we're not going to get into that now. The only exception is a fifth legionnaire who goes by the name of the Flippa Dippa. The Flippa-Dippa is a young black scuba diving enthusiast whose devotion to underwater exploration is such that he insists on wearing a full scuba suit, including flippers, at all times. Fair enough. Big Words is an engineering genius and has designed and built an amphibious flying race car named the Wizwagon, which, despite what its name would imply, is not a mobile urinal. Well, it's got a lot of gadgets, so maybe that is one of its features, but at any rate, it's not just a mobile urinal. Clark Kent is worried that the mission may be too dangerous for Jimmy, and voices his concerns to Morgan Edge. Edge tells Clark to stay out of it, but is worried that Clark will interfere with the important assignment, so he takes the rather extreme precaution of hiring Intergang to kill Clark. That doesn't end up working out too great for Intergang, because, as you may have heard, Clark Kent is actually Superman. You might want to remember that, because it comes up in some later stories. While Clark is dealing with Intergang, Jimmy Olsen and the Newsboys fly the Wizwagon to the wild area, where they find themselves under attack by a group of futuristic hippie bikers named the Outsiders. Like their predecessors, the new Newsboy Legionnaires are no strangers to a dust-up and make short work of their attackers. Not to be outdone, Jimmy punches a biker wearing an iron mask in the face, knocking him out. It turns out that the appropriately named Iron Mask was the leader of the Outsiders, and having defeated him in combat, Jimmy is now the new leader of the Biker Gang. Hooray! Having survived his assassination attempt, Superman is even more concerned about his pal Jimmy's well-being. 
he decides to investigate the wild area himself. After encountering a few hostiles and strangely high-tech counterculture types, he eventually stumbles across the outsiders. Acting on Jimmy's orders, the bikers surround Superman. Jimmy tells his pal to back off and let him finish his secret assignment, but Supes isn't having it, so one of the outsiders knocks him out with a kryptonite stun gun. When the Man of Steel awakens, he is surrounded by the newsboys, who explain to him that he's in a place called the Habitat, a super technologically advanced sort of tree fort that the outsiders found and took over when they got to the wild area. Superman confronts Jimmy, who apologizes for the unfriendly reception, but reiterates that he wants no interference in his mission, which he reveals is to be the investigation of the mysterious Mountain of Judgment. One of the bikers, a gentleman named Yango, explains that the mountain is no mere geological formation, but is also, somehow, a magical, transformative, and potentially deadly experience accessible only by a thing called the Zoom Way. Just then, the ground starts shaking and some strange lights start flashing in the distance. Jimmy tells the outsiders and newsboys to ready themselves. They are about to hunt down the Mountain of Judgment. And there you have the first appearance of the Flippa Dippa. Now, the Flippa Dippa didn't exactly feature that prominently in this issue, and frankly doesn't really feature that prominently in any issues, but he is present. And he does have a few moments that he shines in. He swims in this issue under a river and then knocks one of the hippie bikers out and holds his own pretty well in a fight. He's also significant, not just for being an aquatic teenager, but also maybe technically the first black costumed hero at DC Comics, depending on how you define costumed hero. Mal Duncan showed up in the Teen Titans a few months before this, but he wouldn't get a costume until like the mid to late 70s. And Jon Stewart wouldn't show up in Green Lantern until about a year from the time this comic came out. I mean, it's debatable whether or not the Flippa Dippa's scuba gear counts as a costume, but at the time he was introduced, the only black characters in all of DC Comics, as near as I can tell, were Jackie Johnson, a soldier that Robert Koeniger had introduced in Sergeant Rock in 1961, who was a former championship boxer who had joined the army to fight in World War II and was kind of an homage to Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis, who were both prominent professional athletes who fought in World War II, and Mal Duncan, who had just been introduced a few months before this. Now, the Flippa Dippa isn't exactly a groundbreaking character by any stretch of the imagination, and I do think it's telling that he is a comedy character. It gives the impression that DC felt their readers would be more willing to accept a black character as a joke than as a serious hero. But all that being said, he is still portrayed as a hero, and the comedy of the character does not come from racial caricature, which comic books have a bad history of doing, with characters like the spirit's sidekick Ebony or the young allies Whitewash Jones, who are horrific racial caricatures. The Flippa Dippa is silly, but all of the Newsboy Legion are silly, and he also is pretty effective. He's a competent fighter, and his personality is not rooted in stereotype, which, grading on the curve of 1970s and 60s comics, is kind of refreshing. 
He's portrayed as a fun-loving adventurer who I think fits in well with the rest of the Newsboy Legion and is pretty fun. He and the rest of the Newsboy Legion don't stick around particularly long in comics after this story arc. Uh, they would appear sporadically in the future, but would never really get their own title or anything. Which is a shame, because I like them, and I like the Flippa Dippa. This issue is also Jack Kirby's first work at DC after leaving Marvel and led into all of the Fourth World stuff, and so is significant for that reason as well. And generally, just a lot of fun. So, what did you think of the Flippa Dippa's first appearance? Victorian-era industrialist who was in my comic book room for some reason. It was fine. I like the Flippa Dippa. Although I thought it was odd that DC was so protective of Superman's appearance that they had Al Plastino redraw his head over the Jack Kirby pencils. Yeah, that was weird. And I'll still not be hanging puka shells from any aquatic teen appreciation day tree. Bahumfish! You don't frighten me. I'm, I'm not trying to scare you. But it seems like you're still not in the holiday spirit. So, let's hear another synopsis. Showcase number 79, December 1968. Dolphin, the Fantasy at 14 Fathoms. Written by J. Scott Pike, drawn by J. Scott Pike, inked by J. Scott Pike, lettered by Ben Oda, and edited by Dick Giordano. Aquatic Teen debut of... Dolphin! Hooray! A couple of Navy divers named Chris and Ben have been tasked with retrieving some important documents from the USS Arabesque, a Navy ship that sank during World War II. They dive to the bottom of the ocean and start using some fancy underwater blowtorches to try to cut their way into the sunken dreadnought's hull. Man, seems like a pretty intense mission just to retrieve some paperwork from 23 years ago. What are those documents from 1945 that it's so important must not fall into enemies' hands? Like, some super racist jokes? I'm pretty sure the Navy still had those in 1968. The production notes to Anchors Away? Maybe. I mean, if the Russians got their hands on the concept of having Gene Kelly dance with a cartoon mouse, there's no telling what they would do with it. Anyway... Ben and Chris have almost cut through the part of the hull they were working on when they see something that totally freaks them out. Ben thinks it might be a ghost, so they swim off looking for it to try to do some underwater ghost busting. Spooky. I wonder if swimming into a patch of suspiciously cold water is a sign that there's a sea ghost around. Probably. I still think it's probably less disturbing than swimming into a patch of suspiciously warm water. You know, because... P. Yeah. The duo of divers pokes around a bit and finds what looks like a footprint. They're pretty weirded out, but continue exploring. They find that one of the rooms in the shipwreck has been decorated with fancy kelp and seashells and stuff. The pad was all decked out like it was Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day or something. But that wasn't until October that year. Chris decides to take some pictures, possibly looking for some ideas to spruce up his own bunk a little but his proto-Pinterest project is interrupted by the arrival of an unexpected onlooker. Chris flashes a photo of their subaquatic spectator, but once his vision recovers from the flash from his camera, there's no one there. At that point, their air tanks are almost empty, so the two scuba pals head back up to the surface to report to their captain. 
when they get back to their boat and explain to their superior officer that they were unable to complete their mission on account of they decided to hunt a sea ghost, the captain is surprisingly understanding. He tells them to go to the photo lab and develop their film. When the pictures are ready, the captain looks at them and is like, Well, I'll be. Is this thing that I'm looking at the thing that I think I'm looking at? And everybody's like, Um, yeah, it sure is that thing that you think it is, probably, Captain. Once he is assured that everyone definitely sees the thing that he thinks he sees, the captain orders Ben and Chris and a couple of their scuba buddies to put on their diving gear and go get whatever it is that everyone for sure sees in that picture. A few minutes later, the foursome of frogmen are on the ocean floor, poking around the shipwreck, when Chris spots the object of their search. It is what appears to be a 19-year-old white-haired girl wearing short jorts and a sleeveless denim blouse. Huh. She's like an underwater pinup girl version of Jay Leno. They're all confused as to how she manages to breathe underwater. The divers drag her up to the boat so that they can ask her some questions. Is one of those questions why she decided to screw underwater pinup girl Conan O'Brien out of the underwater pinup girl Tonight Show? Sadly, no. Although if it was, she wouldn't be able to answer anyway, because she doesn't speak English. Or any other human language for that matter. The captain puts Chris in charge of questioning the pretty young Jay Leno cosplayer. She seems amenable, but unable to communicate. He gives her some ice cream, which she seems to like. Chris tells his apparently amphibious guest that his name is Chris. She repeats it back at him, seeming to understand. It would seem like the obvious next step would be to ask her what her name is, but instead, Chris decides that she probably doesn't have one, so he informs her that her new name is Dolphin. She seems fine with that, so Dolphin it is, I guess. It'd be like if that scene in Tarzan had Jane pointing at herself and saying, Jane, and then pointing at Tarzan and saying, Uh, Swingsy, I think. Suddenly, Dolphin's lips start turning blue and she looks like she's going to pass out, so Chris calls the ship doctor. The doctor starts looking her over, but after a couple minutes, she just opens up a porthole and jumps into the ocean. The doctor is like, yeah, that makes sense. She's got gills and stuff. I mean, she's got lungs too, but they aren't as good as her gills, so she probably needs to be in the ocean every, oh, I don't know, hour or so. I was able to tell all that from a two-minute examination, because medical schools in the DC Universe are fucking wild. The next day, Chris is all mopey, because he had a crush on Dolphin, and now she's gone. But the captain's like, Look, there's no time to mope about your half-fish denim enthusiast love interest. We've got a mission. It is vitally important that we retrieve those top-secret documents from a war that ended 23 years ago, and time is running out. You know how that ship you were trying to get into is on the ocean floor? Well, I probably should have mentioned this, but it's actually on the edge of a super deep ocean trench, which it could tumble into at any time. Also, there's a typhoon headed this way in a few days. I know I should have brought this up sooner, but I think we were all curious about how this whole splash situation was going to play out, and I got distracted. Acting on the captain's orders, Chris dives in and starts working on cutting his way into the part of the sunken ship that has the documents in it. He's barely gotten started when Dolphin shows up and gives him a big old hug. Chris is super stoked to see her. He knocks off work early and they head back up to the boat. Over the next couple of days, Chris and Dolphin hang out every chance they get. While Chris is undersea cutting his way towards the documents, Dolphin has the ship's captain and doctor teach her how to speak English. 
It's remarkable how quickly she picks it up. Which is why Chris remarks on it the next time he sees her, and she says, Hello, Chris. How are you? How Chris is, is impressed. He's also pretty tired, because he's been working really hard lately, but has nearly underwater blowtorched his way through to the inner chamber where the documents they seek are stored. That's the good news. As that last sentence would imply, there's also some bad news. The captain informs Chris that the vault the documents are in is booby-trapped, with some kind of magnet bomb that will explode if anything metal gets near it. So, scuba tanks are a no-go. Also, the vault's door got dinged up, so now it'll only open about 8 inches, so none of the divers they have on board could fit through. Chris thinks for a second, and then announces that he has a thought. Did he just realize that booby trap spelled backwards is party boob? No, but it is. The thought that Chris had is, Hey, I bet my new girlfriend could do that for us. I know she's a civilian, and also a fish, and we're not sure that we can communicate with her well enough to be certain that she understands the danger of this mission, but let's have her do it anyway. Damn it, Chris. The captain agrees that that sounds like a fine plan. Damn it, the captain! The next day, Chris and some of his diving chums guide Dolphin to the vault they're trying to get into. They wait outside while their enigmatic aquatic ally makes her way into the ship. A few seconds after she goes in, that typhoon hits, and the ship starts sliding off the ledge. Oh no! Chris wants to rush inside to warn her, but if he did, the metal in his diving gear would set off the bomb and explode the shit out of everybody. He tries to take his gear off so he can swim in after her, but the other divers are pretty sure he would die if he did that, so they stop him. He watches helplessly as the ship Dolphin has just entered plummets off of its precipice and disappears into the inky blackness of the trench. Heartbroken, he and the other divers swim back to the boat. They inform the captain of the sad news. Then Dolphin shows up with the documents. Turns out she was just fine. Hooray! Chris is super stoked that Dolphin isn't dead. She asks if she can have some ice cream. Chris thinks that's hilarious and smooches her. Um, Chris, that's not ice cream. I agree, it's a cute thing to say, but it's also her one request after risking her life to do your job for you. So how about you get her some fucking ice cream? Then you can see if she wants to make out. One of the other sailors sees them kiss and makes a crack about Chris landing a fish. Not cool, buddy. When Dolphin hears this, she's like, Am I a fish? Chris is like, No, that guy is a stupid asshole. You're a pretty lady. Will you move in with me? Dolphin looks real sad and says, No, I'm pretty sure I'm a fish. Then, with tears in her eyes, she jumps in the ocean and swims away. Bye, Dolphin! Bummer. Then there's a reprint of Aqualad's first appearance in Adventure Comics number 269, but we covered that in all its fish-fearing, hoop-and-stick-playing, dressing-up-to-swordfish-to-look-like-a-person, prank-therapy-glory in last year's Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day special, so I'm not going to summarize that one again. Sorry. But on the plus side, I just made it through a whole synopsis that takes place on a Navy ship without once calling the sailors seamen and giggling. <laughs> you know, until now. And there you have the first appearance of Dolphin. 
Dolphin's an interesting character. After her first appearance, she shows up in a brief cameo 10 years later in Showcase Comics number 100, and then doesn't appear again until the mid-80s. Which kind of makes sense. At this time in the Showcase title, they were doing a lot of different stories and different types of stories that weren't necessarily superhero-based. You had some comedy characters like the Maniacs and the Inferior Five. You had detective stories like Johnny Double. You had romance hippie adventure stories like Jason's Quest. And you had kind of fantasy romance stuff like this dolphin story. So it makes sense that you wouldn't necessarily want to incorporate those characters into the rest of the DC Universe, because it's an odd fit. But they did end up doing it. In the 80s, they had Dolphin show up and hang out with, I think, Infinity Inc., maybe, and appear in a few other titles. Uh, during that time, she had, I guess, re-lost her ability to talk, and they made it that she was physically unable to talk but learned sign language, which I think was an interesting twist. Then after Crisis on Infinite Earths, they brought her back in the 90s, and she actually played a pretty prominent role in the Aquaman corner of the DC Universe. I think when they got around to doing her origin, they made it that she was experimented on by aliens or something. And during the time when a bad guy made some fish eat Aquaman's hand, and so he had a harpoon for a hand for a while, Dolphin shot the guy that made fish eat Aquaman's hand, which, again, is a thing that happened. And she felt really bad about that because she's a pacifist. And then she dated Aquaman for a while. And then it turned out that Aquaman's wife, Mara, wasn't dead anymore. So they had to stop dating. And then she dated Aqualad, which must have been awkward. Also, Aqualad was calling himself Tempest at that time, because I guess he had outgrown the lad part of his name. Which I get, but also, you shouldn't call yourself Tempest. First of all, there already was a DC character named Tempest who was part of a reboot of Doom Patrol from the late 70s. But also, if you're a comic book hero and you're calling yourself Tempest, you are just begging a supervillain to put you in a cartoonishly oversized novelty teapot at some point. Anyway, Dolphin ended up actually marrying Aqualad, or Tempest, and that was a whole thing until it got rebooted into never having happened, I think. I'm kind of not up on current DC continuity, or even if there is current DC continuity. So Dolphin's actually ended up sticking around for quite a while. I haven't read a ton of her stuff, but I get the impression that she is usually portrayed as little more than a potential love interest for a male hero, and often in a kind of hyper-sexualized way. Which is not great, and you can kind of see the seeds for that in her first appearance. J. Scott Pike is a really good artist, and he's probably best known for doing pinup calendar art. And a lot of the images of Dolphin in this comic book have a similar feel to that. And I don't think that's coincidence, which you also get from the title of the story, Fantasy at 14 Fathoms. I think Dolphin is often portrayed as a fantasy, and unfortunately, I think part of that fantasy for some people is that she doesn't seem to have her own agency, to the point where often she is unable to communicate. That being said, I do think she's an interesting character, and I think there's a lot that could be done with her, and I think that in the hands of the right creative team, I would love to see a Dolphin miniseries, or even ongoing title. And I think there are some signs that she might be featured more prominently at DC at some point. She ended up showing up and having a, a small role in the recent 
season of the Young Justice cartoon, and I really enjoyed seeing her there. And overall, I gotta say I really liked this issue, too. In spite of its problems, I like the genre of romance comics, and I think this was a pretty good example of a romance comic with a slight supernatural twist. Also, I too like ice cream, so I found the character relatable. What did you think, curmudgeonly Victorian-era industrialist? It was fine, I suppose. Victorian-era industrialist? Is that a tear in your eye? I, it's nothing. It's likely just a mote of dust from one of these old comical books has gotten into my eye and acted as an irritant. Although I'll admit I'm not entirely unmoved by the plight of this iced cream enthusiast and her naval paramour. But I'm not about to go converting all of my currency into sand dollars and dance the hully gully at a seaside beach party. Nobody is asking you to do that. But it does seem like you're a little bit closer to embracing the spirit of Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. So let's listen to another synopsis of the first appearance of an Aquatic Teen hero, shall we? Don't ask me, I'm just a narrative framing device. It was a rhetorical question. Superman, number 129, May, 1959. The Ghost of Lois Lane. Written by Jerry Coleman, drawn by Wayne Boring, inked by Stan Kay, and edited by Mort Weisinger. Yes, back in 1959, comic books just lettered and colored themselves. Handy. So, no aquatic teens in this first story. The story starts off by telling us that ghosts are bullshit and Superman knows they don't exist. Fair enough. Kind of weird to hear that from a dude who pals around with a specter, but okay. Jimmy Olsen has just bought a super fancy high-tech electric typewriter. The main selling point seems to be that the keys are so sensitive that a slight gust of wind can make them type shit. Jimmy is of the opinion that this will make him a faster writer and therefore a better reporter. Yeah, Jimmy, I'm sure insufficient finger strength and lack of breeze-related typos was the thing that was really holding you back. Jimmy wants to tell Lois Lane about his fancy new toy, but she's busy. Seems that a big-shot science guy named Professor Grail lost his briefcase, and for some reason it got turned into the Daily Planet's Lost and Found. Lois figures that if she returns it for him, she might be able to get the scoop on his latest inventions, be they typewriter-related or otherwise. Lois hops in a helicopter and heads to Dr. Grail's island, because, like any self-respecting scientist, he lives on an island. I guess Castle would be another option, but that's really only for mad scientists. Grail greets Lois on the helipad, and is like, Oh, sweet. Thanks. I'm about to head off to a conference, and that briefcase is super important. Lois is like, Shit, I just realized I left the briefcase at the office. The professor is surprisingly understanding, and is like, That's cool. It wasn't that important. Want a tour of my lab? Lois totally wants a tour of his lab. He shows her the new invention he's working on. It's a teleportation beam that would transform people into pure energy and broadcast them to different locations. Also, there is a comfy chair for you to sit on while your atoms get scattered. Because 
I know my major concern about a device that would essentially vaporize me, then put me back together, is that it might not have adequate lumbar support. The device isn't finished yet, probably because upholstery is so expensive. When he's done explaining his top-secret invention to a Snoopy reporter, Professor Grail is like, Well, I'm off to my conference. Just let yourself out of my secret lab and lock up after yourself whenever you're done poking around. Bye! Meanwhile, back at the Daily Planet, mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent notices that Lois left the briefcase behind. He changes into Superman and decides to fly it over to the island for her. A few seconds later, he is approaching the secret lab and decides to use his x-ray vision to make sure she's in there. Turns out this is a bit of an oopsie, because the x-rays trigger some kind of a reaction in the circuitry of the super science chair Lois is still sitting in, and without warning, both high-tech recliner and its occupant explode. Shit. Superman feels pretty bad about blowing up his on-again, off-again love interest. He looks around the island to see if he can find Professor Grail and apologize. Also, apparently one of his lesser-known powers must be super-compartmentalization, because despite having just killed his girlfriend, Supes is still intent on returning the briefcase. He searches the island and sees no sign of Grail, but when he uses his x-ray vision to look behind a tree, he sees the ghostly image of Lois Lane. Which freaks him out, because as established at the beginning of the story, Superman knows that ghosts are bullshit. After a few seconds, the image disappears, and the confused Kryptonian plays it off as his mind goofing on him for murdering her. He decides to try to get his mind off the fact that he just killed the love of his life by straightening the girder at a construction site. But when he uses his x-ray vision to check the girder for structural damage, he sees the ghost of Lois Lane again. The construction workers don't see anything and wonder why Superman is just standing there, slowly melting the beam with his x-rays, which is apparently a side effect of them. Which raises the question, what the fuck is wrong with you, Superman? If that shit melts steel beams, maybe don't just go flying around using it all the time without warning people. Eventually, he snaps out of it and flies up to his Fortress of Solitude to try to process his grief a little bit. He goes to a room that has a weird, creepy shrine to Lois Lane, complete with a life-size, realistic dummy of the intrepid reporter. He uses his x-ray vision to take a closer look at the sex doll, I, I mean statue, and suddenly, he sees Lois's ghost again. I gotta tell you, Clark, an undead spirit is far from the most disturbing thing in this room. At this point, Superman is more annoyed at the ghost than grief-stricken. He's like, Geez, Lois, I know I killed you, but that was like hours ago, and it was an accident. Just leave me alone, will you? This is so like you. And he flies into space, but when he looks inside an asteroid, there's that dang ghost again. Mortified, the haunted hero returns to Earth, changes into his Clark Kent clothes, and heads into work, figuring that since Lois never knew his secret identity, she won't know to haunt him. Pretty sneaky. At the Daily Planet, everyone wonders where Lois is. Rather than informing his co-workers that they should probably start the grieving process, Clark doesn't say shit, and just kinda hopes the whole thing blows over. Jeez, Clark, maybe instead of mild-mannered, your signature adjective should be sociopathic. Seeking to distract himself, Clark uses his x-rays to check out the workings of Jimmy's new typewriter. But as soon as he does, he once again sees the ghost. Everyone wonders why Clark is freaking out, 
But then, a message starts typing itself out on Jimmy's typewriter. The message is from Lois, and says that she is trapped in the fourth dimension and can be freed if someone will pull a lever in Professor Grail's lab. Relieved, Clark slips away, switches into his super duds, and flies off to follow the mysterious missive's instructions. A few minutes later, Lois is back in whatever combination of dimensions she usually lives in. Hooray! She explains to a stupefied Superman that only he could see her because his x-ray vision opened a window to the fourth dimension and that by using that window, she was able to trigger the keys on Jimmy's typewriter with electrical thought energy. See, there was a totally rational and coherent scientific explanation all along. Superman flies Lois home, having learned no lesson whatsoever and fully intending to keep using his x-ray vision willy-nilly, leaving a trail of fourth-dimensional windows and melted steel girders in his wake. The next story up is Clark Kent, Fireman of Steel. Written by Otto Binder, drawn by Al Plastino, inked by Al Plastino, and edited by Mort Weisinger. Clark Kent has been assigned to write a story about being a firefighter, so he reports to the local fire chief for whom he'll be working undercover for the next week. The chief isn't too thrilled with this turn of events because Kent has a reputation for being a total coward and running away whenever there's danger, so he decides to put Clark through the proverbial ringer in the hopes that he'll just up and quit. A few hours after he arrives at the fire station, an alarm sounds, and Clark and the firefighters rush into action. While everyone else is busy manning the hoses, the chief orders Clark to rush into the fire and see if there's anyone inside. The chief figures Clark will chicken out, and then he'll be too embarrassed to finish the assignment. Either that or he'll, you know, die in a fire. Kind of a win-win for the chief, I guess. Clark rushes into the fire because he's Superman and all and knows it'll be just fine. But once he's inside, he realizes that he needs an excuse as to why he's not on fire. So he pokes holes in the water pipes and turns them into sprinklers, which douse the flames. Hooray! And in case there was any confusion by water pipes, I meant the pipes that carry water through the building, not bongs. It'd take a lot longer to put out a fire with one of those. Although, I appreciate the idea of someone turning a bong into something else, because usually that's a conversion that goes in the other direction. When the fire subsides, the chief is surprised to see that Clark is just fine but he chalks it up to dumb luck that the sprinklers must have turned on in time to save him. The next day, someone calls into the station to report that their cat is stuck on top of a factory's giant smokestack. Sensing another opportunity to try to show up the reporter that he hates so much for some reason, the chief tells Clark to climb the giant ladder to rescue the overachieving feline. Clark does as he is told, but when he reaches the precipitously positioned pet, the ladder starts to buckle. The chief orders Kent to drop into a safety net, but mid-fall, one of the firefighters realizes that the net is all messed up and won't hold any weight. Overhearing the conversation, Clark surreptitiously uses his heat vision to turn on a nearby fire hydrant, which sends up a gout of water, which gently lowers Clark and the kitten to the ground. Good job protecting your secret identity. Not suspicious at all. The fire chief is annoyed at Clark's good luck although he claims to be relieved he's not dead. Later that day, there's a fire at the Superman Museum downtown. This time, Clark doesn't even wait for orders. He rushes into the blaze, intent on saving some stupid space souvenirs he donated there. Once he has secured the safety of his extraterrestrial Hummel figurines or whatever, 
Clark turns on a freeze ray machine from Pluto, which puts out the fire. Wait a minute. Why would Pluto need a freeze ray? Seems like that would be like the least useful technology for them to develop. Oh well, maybe that's why they let Superman take it. The point is, Superman saved the museum, and once again did it in a way that allowed the chief to keep thinking he was just a bumbling idiot who was just lucky, instead of a super-powered bumbling idiot who was just lucky. The next day, there's a fire at a chemical factory, and Clark once again pretends to luck his way into putting out the fire and not dying. The chief is pretty frustrated with Clark's continued aliveness, but is also probably at least a little bit relieved that for once, a chemical factory in a comic book caught on fire and didn't give any supervillains powers. Finally, the week-long assignment is over. Clark tells the chief that he'll write a nice puff piece about how brave and awesome firefighters are, and the chief is like, Whatever, go fuck yourself, you lucky piece of shit. I still hate you for reasons that are unclear even to myself. The next day, Superman is out on patrol when he sees flames rising from the fire chief's house. He flies down and puts out the grease fire that the chief hadn't noticed had started on his stove because he was too engrossed in reading the article that Clark Kent had written about him. Superman is like, Pretty good article, huh? The chief replies, Yeah, I guess. Thanks for saving me, Superman. I'm sure glad you're not Clark Kent. Man, I hate that guy. He's a stupid piece of shit. Superman just kind of winks at the camera and is like, Oh, is he? And finally, we have The Girl in Superman's Past. Written by Bill Finger, drawn by Wayne Boring, inked by Stan Kay, and edited by Mort Weisinger. Featuring the aquatic teen debut of Lori Lamaris. Hooray! Clark Kent and Lois Lane are at his old college, Metropolis University, attending a football game. It's a little chilly, so Lois has a blanket draped over her legs. Clark looks at the blanket thoughtfully. For a second, it looks like he's going to try to use his x-ray vision to perv out on her gams, but instead of accidentally turning her legs into ghosts or banishing them to another dimension or something, Clark gets a faraway look in his eyes and starts staring off into the middle distance. He remembers someone else he once knew on this campus who draped a blanket over their legs. Did Clark go to college with Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life? Possibly, but that's not who he's thinking of. Let's join Clark on his lackadaisical ride on his back-in-the-daysicle as he reminisces about a collegiate love interest. Teenage college student Clark Kent was walking around campus one day, when a beautiful brown-haired co-ed in a wheelchair sped past him, careening down the hillside, apparently out of control. As Clark raced after her to keep her from crashing, he used his heat vision to melt her tires a little so that he wouldn't have to blow his cover by using his super speed. He caught up just in time to catch the young woman as she was thrown from her chair. The woman seemed grateful for the assistance and introduced herself as Lori Lamaris. She had a slight, indecipherable accent, and Clark was immediately smitten with this mysterious young lady. She noticed that the wheels of her chair seemed a little melty, and looked quizzically at Clark for a minute, and then in her charming accent was like, I guess the rubber from these wheels must have melted from the friction, huh? I mean, that's the only explanation for this, right? Wink, wink. Clark was like, um, yup, guess so. Later that day, the two ended up having a marine biology class together on the floating aquarium that was anchored near the seashore. 
Damn. Metropolis U must have some generous alumni. Suddenly, in the middle of class, a boiler exploded, shattering the aquarium and sending fish and students alike plunging into the ocean. Luckily, Clark was carrying a spare Superman outfit in his school briefcase. Wait, he had a school briefcase? What is he, trying to banish his chances of ever being invited to a party to the Phantom Zone? Anyway, as Superman, Clark rounded up all of the escaped fish and put them in an undersea cage that he had made out of seaweed. Hooray! When he looked up from playing fish cowboy, Clark saw that Lori was being grasped in the tentacles of an enormous one-eyed octopus. Oh no! He started swimming towards them, but the octopus got an odd look in its one eye and suddenly swam off. Hmm. After that, Lori and Clark started spending all of their time together. Clark found himself falling in love with the strangely compelling woman with the charming accent. He daydreamed about carving Mount Everest into a giant statue of her, or gathering an orchestra from all over the world and carrying them around as they played a love song that he wrote to her. Wow. How romantic. I mean, nothing says love like destroying natural wonders and kidnapping musicians and forcing them to labor on your behalf. The only problem was that every night at exactly 8 o'clock, Lori would make an excuse and head home. Huh. Wonder if she saw his college briefcase. One morning, Lori approached Clark and told him that their date that night would have to be their last. Her parents had insisted that she return to her home country that night. Clark was devastated and decided that not only would he tell Lori his secret identity, but that he would also ask her to marry him. Unfortunately, the fraternity house Clark was pledging had decided that all potential initiates had to stay inside that night. Um, okay, I get that it was a different time, but I find the idea of Superman as a literal frat boy very unsettling. Clark decided to plug the frat house's chimney so that the building would fill with smoke and he could sneak away unnoticed. Gosh, a frat house filled with clouds of smoke? Only in a comic book. The plan worked without a hitch, and Superman flew off to meet Laurie at the seashore for their date. Clark got down on one knee and proposed marriage. Then he was like, But before you answer, there's something I have to tell you. Lori was like, Oh, is it about you being Superman? Because yeah, I've known that all along. But uh, as for the proposal, I love you too, but uh, I can never marry you. Superman was like, What, is this because you're in a wheelchair? Don't worry about that. I'm Superman. I bet I can figure out a way to fix you. Wow. Just... Wow, how romantic. The words every girl longs to hear, I can probably fix you. Lori was like, um, yeah, look, I gotta go. Uh, thanks for everything, but uh, I, I need to be home by eight. Bye, Superman. Clark was confused at this rejection and couldn't seem to wrap his mind around it. A frat boy who doesn't deal well with rejection? You don't say. He decided to follow her home and spy on her with his x-ray vision. Damn it, Clark! He saw that at 8 o'clock sharp, Lori made a secret radio transmission. He began to worry that the object of his affection might be a spy. Despite the fact that he was in love with her, Clark felt he owed it to his country to find out if Lori was engaged in espionage that might pose a threat to the United States government. 
When Lori left to go out for a late dinner, he broke into her room to look for evidence. Damn it, Clark! He was surprised to find that Lori had a waterbed. By which I mean that instead of a bed, she just had a big tank of water. Odd, but frankly only slightly less impractical than a more conventional waterbed. Suddenly, all the pieces fell into place for the heartbroken young Kryptonian. He rushed off to find Lori and tell her what he had discovered. When Lori saw Superman approaching, she was like, So, you finally figured it out, did you? Before either of the young lovers got a chance to say exactly what it was that Clark may or may not have figured out, a dam burst nearby and threatened to flood the homes in the valley beneath it. Clark started to fly off, but Lori asked him to take her along with him as she might be able to help out, so Clark picked up her wheelchair and carried her towards the source of all of the commotion. When they got to the flooded area, Superman upended the wheelchair and flung Lori into the water below. Well, I guess that'll teach her to reject your marriage proposal. Actually, once she's out of the chair, the blankets fall from her lap, revealing what Clark had just figured out. Lori Lamaris is a mermaid. Hooray! Clark and Lori worked together to rescue the stranded homeowners, repair the dam, and even drag the salvageable houses to dry land. When their work is done, the two weary heroes head back to Lori's place to talk things over. Turns out, in addition to being a mermaid, Lori is also telepathic, which is how she got the octopus to leave her alone before, and also how she knew Clark's secret identity from the start. Man, between her reading his mind the whole time, and his x-ray vision spying on her and searching her property, maybe these two are made for each other. I mean... A mutual lack of respect for personal privacy may not be the strongest foundation for a marriage, but I've seen relationships built on less. Terrible relationships, but still. Lori goes on to explain that she is from Atlantis, but a different Atlantis than the one that Aquaman and Aqualad live in. Kind of like there's a Portland in Oregon and also a Portland in Maine. Lori's Atlantis was originally an island, like a million years ago or something. But one day, its scientists realized that the island was sinking, so they built a glass dome over it. Then, a while later, when the island had finished sinking, they figured out a way to turn everybody into mermaids and smashed the dome because they didn't need it anymore. Huh. Seems like if they could do all that stuff, they probably could have just moved when the island started sinking. Like... They could figure out a mermaidification process and watertight plexiglass dome construction and demolition, but not boats? Maybe they just really hated packing. I get that. Anyway, every hundred years or so, Atlantis sends one representative to the surface to learn about what the land dwellers are up to. This time, Lori was chosen. Lori told Superman that she loved him very much, but she had to do her duty and return to her people under the sea. Superman said he understood, then carried her back to the ocean, where they made out for a little while, before she swam home. Back in the present, Lois is like, Hey, Clark, you dragged me to your old college, brought me to a football game, and then have been staring off into the middle distance for like half an hour. What's going on? Clark answers, Oh, I was just thinking of a friend of mine and why he never got married. Gee, Clark, maybe it's at least in part because he ignores his date to stare off into the middle distance and wax nostalgic about an ex-girlfriend. But, also, 
you know what they say. Once you go aquatic, you never go backquatic. Okay, maybe they don't say that, but if backquatic was a word, then they might. And there you have the aquatic teen debut of Lori Lamaris. Lori Lamaris showed up a bunch in the Silver Age as one of Superman's many double L-initialed love interests. You know, Lois Lane, Lori Lamaris, Luma Lanai, Lex Luthor, Lana Lang, and I'm probably missing a couple. And those stories are a lot of fun. I actually really love Silver Age Superman comics. They are really weird and really goofy. And Superman is often kind of a dick in them in ways that I don't expect him to be. Uh, You saw some of that in this one. Like, he goes from being grief-stricken that he killed Lois Lane to being like, why won't this fucking ghost just leave me the fuck alone? Real quick. Um... But the stories are imaginative and are a ton of fun, and the Lori Lamara stories are all pretty fucking great. She didn't really show up too much in the 70s and early 80s, and then she died in the same scene that Aqua Girl did in Crisis on Infinite Earths. She got brought back later in the John Byrne era of Superman, but at that point when she was on land, she just would grow legs like Daryl Hannah and Splash. Which is fine, but also seems like kind of a cop-out. I like when she had to cart her big fishtail around. I thought that was fun. And then I think in the 90s, they brought her back again, and she actually was, I think, Lois's roommate for a little while, which was awkward. But I really like Lori Lamaris, and the way she's portrayed in this story is great, and the way she's portrayed generally is pretty great. She's a strong, independent woman, And I like that that is kind of Superman's type, maybe even more so than the double L initials. She is often portrayed as being a legitimate hero of her people in her own right, and uh, I really dig that. And I really dig Lori Lamaris. What do you think of Lori Lamaris and the rest of our aquatic teen heroes now, curmudgeonly old Victorian-era industrialist? Oh, I've been a fool! These aquatic teens should truly be appreciated, on this day and on every other. It's not too late, is it? It's still Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. It certainly is. Then you, boy. I'm like 40. Here's threepence. I want you to go to the fishmonger in the town square and buy the biggest sea bass he has hanging in the window. The one as big as I am? The very same. Go and fetch it back to this room. Um, I actually really don't allow food in here, especially raw fish. Bring it back and we will sacrifice it to my dark gods. Um, that's really not what Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day is about. Oh, the old ones shall rise and smite the enemies of Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. What are you talking about? I I thought we could just, you know, spread some kelp around and maybe look at some shells. And from this day forward, I will keep appreciation of aquatic teens in my heart all year round. And never again will I say bah humfish to those who have cheer in their heart. Oh, well, um, okay, you know what? I'll, I'll take it. Um... Happy Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day, everyone!
And thanks for joining us for this self-indulgent goof-em-up. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I really did like looking at some of these old comic books and enjoying the origins of some lesser-known aquatic teens. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined for real this time by Dr. Osvaldo Oyola and finish up our coverage of the Omega the Unknown storyline. And then we'll be back in two weeks and Corey will be back and join us for some more New Teen Titans coverage. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by contacting us either electronically, as this is the future, at ttwasteland at gmail.com, or we can be reached at our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Bucks 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We're also up in a whole bunch of other aspects of the internet, so you can check us out on uh, all the social media places you might expect to find us. Your Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, probably some others. And if you can't find us there, then try looking in your heart. And we'll be in there setting up the Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day tree and decorating it with a garland of puka shells. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by reaching us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. Um, there is the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. That is called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. It's a show that's name has diminishing returns, but hopefully its content doesn't. Um, there are also a ton of video reviews of classic comic books that I've been making. This last week, I talked about four or five different Denny O'Neill comics as he unfortunately passed this week. Uh, but I had a really good time going through and rereading some of his work and talking about it with you. And uh, yeah, there's just a ton of other stuff up there, various uh, bonus podcast material that you get exclusive access to if you are a donor. Um, this month, just so you know, all donations are going to be sent to National Bail Relief Funds, and then Lisa and I are going to be matching that donation and uh, sending that to other anti-racism charities. So that's where that money is going to go this month, and donating gives you access to all that material I listed earlier. But in general, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to leave us a review on a place where you can leave reviews. We've gotten some lovely ones lately. Uh, let's check over on Apple Podcasts and read a five-star review that we've gotten there. Rob the Rob Rob writes, Super fun show. Five stars. And they promised me a carrot if I wrote a review. Thanks, Rob the Rob Rob. Shit, now I gotta scrape together carrot postage. I knew that was gonna be an issue. Thanks, though. And in conclusion, Happy Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day! And Aqualad bless us, everyone. Goodbye! swimming under the full moon the werewolf and the creature from the black lagoon Dracula what do you think of my new smash whatever happened to the monster mash and it's a poolside smash why it's bigger than the mash